0: culture around us in this area, or maybe you can think about your workplace or wherever you live, um, how would you characterize the spiritual culture of Newtown and Erskineville? It's well known that this area of Sydney is one of the most secular and irreligious in Australia, Um, but we shouldn't confuse disbelief in traditional uh, religions with being unspiritual I think there are actually very few full-blown materialists uh, a- around here people who who think that there really are no spiritual dimensions to life there are some uh, of course but not as many as as you might think lots of people I meet um, are to a greater or lesser extent for example interested in Buddhism uh, lots of people take crystals seriously now, the crystal shops in Newtown seem to do a pretty roaring trade. People have all sorts of ideas about spirituality. Do you think, I mean, so far, you, you agree? You know? Think about your colleagues or people you meet around here. Okay, h- how could we characterize this spiritual culture? I'm very much myself working on an answer to this, and I hope you're curious. I'm not going to pretend to do some kind of you know definitive analysis or anything. Um, I, I do recommend, if you want to see some of the some of the variety across Australia. Have a listen to um, the radio national podcast or program Soul Search I recommend it partly because uh, the host of it is a lady who goes to the morning service here, at Meredith Lake and uh, I think it's just really interesting program, gives you a bit of a snapshot of spiritualities in Australia. But for now let me just point out you know in lieu of kind of really serious analysis let me just say a couple of things that I think are interesting. I think it's really interesting the way there is in this area a kind of mix of openness and rigidity. So on the one hand, there is a surprising openness, I find, among people to spiritual claims. Try talking to people about, say, crystals, or about their meditation practices, or about perhaps indigenous spirituality. I sometimes hear people speaking with surprising confidence about the universe and its messages. Instagram is awash with spiritual certainties and ideas and, you know, kites people are flying it. Quite dramatic spiritual claims and ideas are often accepted without much pushback. Oh, really? That's interesting, you know. So there's an openness. But on the other hand, There is also a kind of rigidity about all this, uh, a rigidness. You bump into it as soon as you try and make any claim that goes beyond the individual and their instincts and intuitions. People are really allergic, I reckon, to the idea that someone might tell someone else that their ideas about spirituality are mistaken or false. Uh, or that they should perhaps take on a different viewpoint. Actually, that gets people's hackles up. There is a kind of sacredness to the individual's, person's, free intuitions and insights about spirituality, and there's a sense that it's kind of wrong to impinge upon that, I think. So I wonder, just try this on, I wonder if actually the most important feature of the spiritual culture around here is actually... It's individualism. What I mean by that is, is people really feel that spirituality is a business of the self and its fulfillment. It's about self-fulfillment. And and the individual person is a kind of authority in this space. We, we can have a basic confidence in individual people and their, their instincts when it comes to spiritual matters. And so if something doesn't doesn't fit with me if something doesn't feel right and connect with how i see the world well then it isn't right it's not right because it's not right for me by the same token if something doesn't fit for someone else then who is anyone to push back on that that's a kind of confidence in the individual i think now there's more to say about all this. You might disagree with some or other or all of that. That's totally fine. Um, That description could probably be changed or nuanced. The purpose of saying all that is is not to kind of get it exactly right, but actually just to, to get us ready to register the profound challenge, the radical challenge to our spiritual culture and to really every spiritual culture that John's gospel tells us that Jesus presents. Today we are considering, as I said, just one verse, the final verse of the prologue to John's gospel. You've got it printed on your outlines there. Uh, weird outline today because we had trouble with the photocopier, but the Bible bit's still there. The last verse there, verse 18. Um, It's so significant, this verse, that it deserves slow and careful consideration. John writes, I'll put it on the screen as well, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. There are three moments in that incredible sentence to register. The first is, no one has ever seen God. What does that mean? The second is, what John tells us about who Jesus is. And Third, what it means that he has made God known. Okay, so that's where we're going. Um, Pretty simple tour through the verse. Firstly then, no one has ever seen God. What does that mean? What it means, I think, is that it's, it's a radical assault on our natural ability to know the spiritual truth of things. This is a confession that left to ourselves and even left with one another... We really are ignorant of the most important spiritual reality. There is a God, you see, but we haven't seen him. And so we remain actually deeply ignorant of the spiritual truth of things. Our natural instincts cannot reach god we we can't reach god john means by sight i think to include not just sight but all of our capacity to reach out with our senses towards god our disciplines and our practices cannot reach him our spiritual guides and gurus and religious traditions too they are in the final analysis ignorant actually of spiritual reality now john is actually speaking here sorry from within the tradition of Israel, it's easy to assume that at this point John is presenting a challenge to Israel. Um, John was a Jew, like all of the gospel writers, and he came—you know—came from Jewish traditions. But it's easy to think that he's challenging those traditions here, because in the Old Testament, if you if you're familiar with it, people have actually all sorts of encounters with God. Um, The God of Israel reveals himself to people in all sorts of ways. We've seen some of them this year, actually. Elijah, you know, Elijah meets God on Mount Sinai. But actually what John says here, no one has ever seen God. It actually comes from within this tradition, I think. Because it's also a constant theme of the Old Testament that people do not actually, they don't actually see God when they meet him. When Abraham meets the Lord in the book of Genesis, he doesn't quite meet the Lord, he meets his angel. When Moses first meets God, it's not actually God that he sees, it's a burning bush, or more accurately, a bush that is burning but doesn't burn up. Um, when Moses sees God again on Mount Sinai a little later, he also, he also doesn't see God. Exodus tells us that he sees his back Whatever that means. When Elijah meets with God, as we saw earlier in the year, in the same place, Elijah has to cover his face. Uh, When the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord at the beginning of his ministry, this is in chapter 6, we're going to look at this next year, I think, Uh, Isaiah also doesn't see him. He, He says, actually, I saw the Lord, the hem of his robe filled the temple. So actually, all he sees is the hem of his robe. In fact, it's, it's, it's actually deep in the heart of Israel's awareness and understanding of God that God cannot be seen because God is, God is actually, strictly speaking, invisible. God is spirit, John says in chapter 4. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not a creature, you see. He is not another part of this universe, even another dimension or aspect of it god is not another name for the universe seen spiritually because that's to say he's still part of this world but no the bible says that god is god the creator who is so completely not of this world that he he is in a, in a I'll I'll um I'll share an idea here that I think is really interesting so in the 15th century. There's a guy called Nicholas of Cusa, medieval uh, Catholic theologian, and he said, "Actually, do you know what? God is not even other." Right? Theologians often describe God, and you might have heard God described as the one who is wholly other. But Nicholas of Cusa came along and said, "No, he, that's not right because because to be other, you still you still can compare." You're still part of the same context in which you can compare things. It's more accurate to say that God is not other, right? Because he's not—he can't be compared on any of the same levels of comparison. I mean, it's kind of one of those moments in theology where somebody, you know, just trumps somebody. Oh, he's wholly other. I say he's not other, and everybody scratches their beards and thinks, "Oh, that's very interesting." But it's trying to—it's trying to get at something actually deeply deeply serious, which is what it means to to believe in God, a God who is really God and, and not just another word for part of this world. And what that means is that God is not just hard to reach for us, not just hard to see, he's radically unseeable. This is a truth to be reckoned with and one that our spiritual culture finds really very uncomfortable, that the deepest of life is that there is a God and he cannot be seen by us. And so the individual is not an authority at this point. The individual and our instincts are, are not something we should have much confidence in. But that does not mean that God cannot be known at all. This is what John goes on to say. But we need to take what John says next slowly, noticing two moments in what John says. And the reason, because the reason that that, that John says that God can be known lies first and foremost within the being of God. Now that will sound like we're heading out into deep waters, okay? And we kind of are, but don't glaze over. If, you're, if you really kind of hate theology and philosophy, just stay with this for a moment because talking with care and accuracy about God is actually worth the effort because it enables us to understand our faith a little more deeply and it keeps us from going wrong. And John is doing what he's doing here at the beginning of the gospel deliberately because he thinks it's really important if we're, if we're really going to understand who Jesus is and what he means. So John says, I'll take us back to the verse, no one has ever seen God. And then he says something about God. But the one and only Son who is himself God as, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. It's that middle bit I want to focus on here. The one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. What is John saying there about Jesus and about God? Well, this phrase is a really thorny one. Um, It's worth having a look at how that is translated in some other English versions. Uh, So here you go. Um, The NRSV says, It is God the only son who is close to the father's heart. That's how it translates that bit. The NASV has God the only son who is in the arms of the father. And then the ESV has the only God who is at the Father's side. Now, let me ask you a question. Put your hand up if you What do you notice about those different versions? What do you notice about the differences? The non rhetorical question. What stands out to you? Yes, there definitely is some sort of proximity. Yep. What do you notice about the differences between the translations? I mean, that's absolutely right, Maxim. Totally agree. Kirsten. Yes, so the first two and our one say God the only son, but ESV doesn't have the word son, the only God. What else do you notice? Anything? All right, let me tell you a couple of things. The first thing I want to talk about is what Kirsten mentioned there. the first two translations there go with God, the only son. Our translation uses a long phrase, if you notice it, the one and only son who is himself God. That's nine words. The last one there, the ESV, doesn't use the word son at all, but has the on, it, it just has the only God. Now, that, that's kind of a big difference. Um, is it son? Is it God? What, what's, what's John saying? Well, the main reason for all this difficulty, is that the Greek manuscripts differ at this point. A lot of manuscripts have the word sun, but the earliest manuscripts don't have it, and instead they have the word God. Now you might think that, well, how did that happen? It's actually not that difficult for a, a, a change like that to creep in, partly because Greek is all written in capitals with no spaces at the time, and if you're copying a text out, and you're really used to reading the phrase "monogenes huios, which means only we've got the one and only son, and you're used to it because it says it later in John's Gospel. But what John actually writes here is monogenes theos, one and only God. You could really easily actually just get the two letters wrong. Right? So it's not that surprising, but you know it's kind of an important difference. Did John write son, or did he write the only God? And it's actually hard to say. That's why our English version has gone both ways. It's kind of trying to have its cake and eat it, but at the cost of brevity. Our English version has nine words, where the Greek has two. (coughs) Does any of this matter? Does it matter? Well, yes and no. It would be great, actually, to know what John said here, and it's worth keeping arguing about, and scholars do argue. Recently, a whole new edition of the Greek New Testament which is almost exactly the same as the other ones we have, but differs partly on this, was released, because they thought that the sun is the better one. So it is worth arguing about, but also no, because in a sense the main things John was trying to do here are, I think, quite clear. There's no doubt that John does think the one he was talking about is himself God. Right? He said so at the beginning of the passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there's no doubt also that the, the one and only from the father is also the son, because later in the gospel, John calls him this repeatedly. So one way or another, what's going on here is that John is trying to express something profound about the identity of God. God, John is saying, is also a second unique one, the, only, the one and only son. That's what you see clearly in the second half of the phrase. Um, This is what I thought you'd pick up. Just notice the different translations here of that second half of the phrase. Uh, Who is close to the Father's heart? Who is in the arms of the Father? uh, Who is at the Father's side? Whereas ours has and is in closest relationship with the Father. I think that's accurate, but it's super boring uh, because it's lost that, that whole image that's there in the Greek. Uh, which says, literally, it, literally, it's who is in the bosom of the Father, or is it, it, at the chest of the Father. Um, and that's why they've translated, you know, what does it mean to be in the bosom of the Father, close to the Father's heart? That's what it means, or at the Father's side. Do you see what's going on there? But what does John mean by saying that? Again, he's trying to find language to express something about The inner life and reality of God. What an extraordinary thing to try and do. And it it is about relationship at some level. John tells us that within the life of God, there is movement, you see. There is Father and there is the one and only Son from the Father. There is the Father and there is one who is with Him the word that is at his side, at his breast somehow. Within the reality of God, there is movement of love, of one to another. Now, whether we can express this perfectly or not, this is a big deal right here. It's a big deal because it is this truth about God, you see, that is the reason that God can make himself known. Because it means that In himself, in God's self, God is not motionless. He's not static and isolated. Rather, within God, there is always already movement, communication, love expressing itself to another. This is John's extraordinary claim here. That God's life is not flat and stationary, it is textured and full. It is word and fatherhood. It is such that the one true God is both father and the one and only son and word that is from him. And that means that it lies within the very being of God to communicate and to make known. This is important because you know lots of other people have believed throughout the history of philosophy and religion in in a kind of ultimate oneness and a god who is ultimate ultimately kind of one and very often they have been led to the conclusion that that one the one is unknowable right because it's it's just a kind of perfect one that there's no way of getting at so uh Plato's thought constantly led in that direction, especially when it was kind of rebuilt by Plotinus in the uh, 3rd and 4th century. Um, Much monotheism leads in that direction, much Islamic thought, I think, in the direction that if if God is ultimately one, he he can't truly be known. But John's gospel and the whole Christian theological tradition says, no, that's not right. It says that the the ultimate reality of God is not stillness and isolation, but movement and communication, love and word. And that means that God can make himself known because already, always, and forever, God is a movement of love of one to another within himself. There's nothing more ultimate than that movement. And that's the third, movement, or the third moment in John's sentence. The one and only son has made him known. Now, I'm sorry to say this, but I have one more bit of Greek to give you. I know there's a lot, but it's a deep dive into this sentence. The word that John uses here for made him known is a really interesting word. It means something like to set something forth or to give a detailed report or account of um, or to expound that is, the word when it says God has made him known, it's a verbal concept. It, it suggests the idea of words and speech. And this is what John says the unique son has done. He has expounded God. He has articulated him. Now, it's worth noticing this. I really think it's worth noticing this for two reasons. The first is, it makes sense in connection with John's description in this passage as we've seen repeatedly, as of this one as the Word. Do you remember at the beginning? In the beginning was the Word. It is the Word that has set God forth, John says. It's an image of words and speech. Secondly, it stops us thinking that what John means here is that Jesus makes God visible. As if John's point was that, Nobody had ever seen God, but now that Jesus has come, people can see him, right? That might be how you've read this sentence for years. I, I think it's how I often assume this sentence should be read, but that's, I really don't think that was John's point. If John had wanted to say that Jesus makes God visible, he could have said that, but he didn't. No, he, says, he uses a verbal term. He says that Jesus is the articulation of God. In Jesus, we don't see God. We hear him. So what John is not saying here is that whereas no one had ever seen God, Christians are in a different position because they have seen God. Actually, there is a sense in which that's right, and John knows that, right? Of the first Christians, you can say that in a sense because John has said Jesus is the word made flesh, and so in a way... To see him is to see God. But John himself takes quite a lot of care about how he says that. So back in verse 14, if you have a look at it, what did John say? He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen what? His glory. We have seen his glory. There is actually... um, so we just John's just being careful about how he says this. There's a line in the Christmas carol, we should have sung it tonight, but I didn't get organized in time to tell the band. The Christmas carol Hark hark the herald angels sing has this really interesting line. Here it is. I think I've got it on screen. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That actually gets it quite right. So it it, it says in Jesus people did see God, but they also didn't see him because they only saw him veiled in flesh. It's very like Moses and Mount Sinai. He saw God, but he also didn't. It's very like Isaiah in, in the temple. I saw the Lord, but, but didn't. Jesus does not mean that God can be seen straightforwardly. Jesus does not mean that now our human powers have been enabled to reach God. No. No, God is spirit, we don't reach him under our own steam ever, not even when he becomes incarnate. When John says, no one has ever seen God, he means it, I think, to include Christians. But Jesus does mean that God can be known, because Jesus is the words making known of, the articulation of, the explanation of God. And if we will listen, if we will look at him and receive that word, we can know God. Okay, where does this leave us? I've been a bit unfair, haven't I? I began with relaxing musings on crystal shops. Kind of easy way to begin a sermon. Only to hit you with pretty dense theology. It's a bit heavy for this, this end of the year, isn't it? It is heavy. But I think it's also fitting, I think it's fitting, because it humbles us, you see. To see what John is saying here is to see that our easy assumptions about spirituality, our assumptions about ourselves and our own capacities and the value and authority of our feelings and instincts, they are often just delusion and pride. The truth about us, under our own steam, is that we are ignorant of spiritual reality. And we cannot attain knowledge through our own powers. Because there is a true and living God, and we have not seen him. This is humbling. And what better time to be humbled and at Christmas. Because this is actually what Christmas is about. To celebrate the birth of Jesus is to celebrate what John speaks of here, of how the one and only Son made God known. The Word became flesh and articulated the living God. But that also shows us that the humility that we are called to at Christmas, it's not just agnosticism. Agnosticism means, you know, I don't know-ism. Real humility is not just saying, I don't know. Uh, No one can be sure. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the truth about these things. That's not real humility. Real humility is the humility to accept knowledge where it is to be found, where it is given, to receive it and welcome it where it is to be had. And this is what John shows us here and what Christmas is about, that here is the place. Here is the place where God has made himself known. This is the place where God has set God's self forth. Can I just encourage you, if you have been seeking spiritual truth, you really you really would like to know. The Bible says this is, where it's, this is where you can find it. Because in Jesus Christ, the invisible God has set himself forth, has given himself to be known. Can I challenge all of us, why not over summer read a gospel? I mean, Everybody, you know, it should be just part of the Christian life. Why not make it a goal? Just read one of the Gospels again, look at Jesus, encounter him, hear God in him. Can I invite us all to come to this Christmas in a spirit of profound humility and thankfulness, with a a confession, of our ignorance of God under our own powers and a willingness to seek the Lord where he may be found, where God, the one and only, has made himself known. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you as the invisible God the one who is before all things and, who in, and in whom all things hold together and yet who is so much greater than us, we cannot attain to you, Lord. We cannot see you. We cannot reach you under our own powers, but you have reached out to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us to behold him, Lord, and in seeing him, to genuinely know you. And we pray for the work of your Spirit among us to teach us of yourself more and more and more, this summer and always. Amen.